Was that music wonderful? Amen. Amen. I mean, if you're going to clap, you've got to clap. I mean, you either have to do it or not do it, right? So I just as soon do it. Thank you, Ron. And choirs and brass and percussion, all that works so hard. Let me begin this morning by just asking you a question. This is not just an academic question. This is probably life's most profound question. The question that has occurred to man since the very beginning of time. The question is, if a person dies, will they live again? When I die, will I live again? The Bible tells us that it goes all the way back to Job, at least, in Job 14, 14. You know, when Adam fell in that garden, he plunged all of his posterity into ruin. The guilt of his transgression attached to all who would follow from his loins. And he ruined the race. The Bible is very clear. It says that the wages of sin is death. And the universal testimony of the scriptures and human experience is that we have all been infected with the disease of sin. It is a deadly disease. It is a disease that is always terminal. Way back in the very beginning of the Scriptures, back into the book of Genesis, we don't read very long, arriving in chapter 5 at what theologians call the graveyard of the book of Genesis. Barely two chapters out of that garden experience and already the the universal experience of death is hammered home. When you read Genesis 5, you can almost hear taps in the background. It says all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And the days of Kenan were 910, and he died. And the days of Mahalalel were 895, and he died. And the days of Jared were 962, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times in that one chapter. God wants it to be absolutely clear that the wages of sin are death. There is no avoiding that reality. And the reality of death is further compounded by the knowledge that 
It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. That each and every one of us live under a death sentence and there is judgment awaiting. It is inescapable. It is reality. Throughout the ages, humanity has tried to deal with this reality in a number of different ways. They've comprised various philosophical systems to try to escape the reality, to somehow deny the existence of God, and perhaps in doing that, they might escape the death sentence and the judgment that follows it. Others have established various man-made religious systems that might somehow appease their Creator and escape the judgment that that way. But none of them, neither man's most brilliant philosophical musings or man's most elaborate religious ritual, can reach beyond the grave. You know how I know that? I know that because each of the founders of these systems died themselves. Buddha, born 560 B.C., died 480 B.C., still dead. Confucius, born 550 B.C., died 479 B.C., still dead. Plato, the Greek philosopher, born 427, died 347 B.C., still dead. Muhammad, born 570 A.D., died 632, still dead. Rousseau, the brilliant French philosopher, born 1712, died 1778, still dead. Karl Marx, born 1818, died 1883, still dead. Jesus of Nazareth, born 5 B.C., still alive. He is alive. He has reached beyond the grave. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, black covered. If you'll open to page 1057 in those Bibles, you'll find Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We're going to be looking at Some verses out of that final chapter of Luke's Gospel together this morning. You know, early this morning I I got up and I reread the four Gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just to put it back fresh into my mind this morning. And as I read through those four accounts, the one thing that is absolutely clear as you read them is that his followers were not expecting nor looking for a resurrection. It is the uniform testimony of the four gospel writers 
that neither the women nor the disciples nor the greater group of followers had any expectation at all that that grave would be empty. They all went there looking to find a body and found none. In fact, they were so unpersuaded, even by the empty tomb itself, that it required Jesus Christ to appear to them a number, over a number of occasions, and to give them many convincing proofs. They didn't just roll over, they were natural skeptics. It was not the product of some mass hallucination. In fact, as we'll see together this morning, Jesus actually rebukes them for their failure to believe that which they've seen with their own eyes and that which had been foretold. A greater group of eyewitnesses you couldn't find. These people were skeptics, and yet they were overpowered by what they heard, what they saw, what their hands handled. This morning, as we look here in Luke's Gospel, verses 36 and following, we're going to examine seven convincing proofs for the resurrection. Seven convincing proofs for the resurrection so that you may know that Jesus is alive And that because he lives, you may live also. The answer to the question of when I die, shall I live again? Can be found here in Luke's gospel for us. Follow along as I read the text this morning. Beginning in verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. Now they said to him, or he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Seven convincing proofs for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first proof is the evidence of testimony itself. It's here right in the beginning of verse 36. It says, and while they were telling these things. While they were telling these things. What things? 
Well, if we were to go back earlier into Luke's gospel here of chapter 24, we would see that on the afternoon of that resurrection Sunday, these two disciples were headed down to the village of Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were discussing together what had transpired over the weekend. And they couldn't believe the events. And a stranger came along and joined them and walked along with them. And they talked as they went. And Luke tells us that, that when they arrived at the village of Emmaus, the stranger made like he was going to continue on, but they invited him to stay and have an afternoon meal with him. And so he did. He came in and he stayed with them for the meal. And as he broke bread, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized the reality of the risen Jesus Christ in their midst and he vanished. Well, they packed everything up and hustled the seven miles back up to Jerusalem with the testimony that they had been with the risen Christ. They had seen him. They had even broken bread with him. They arrived back in Jerusalem. And if we were to go to John's gospel, he would add a few narrative details for us. That when they arrived back there in Jerusalem, they found the other 11 locked in an upper room for fear of the authorities. They had closed and locked the doors and windows of this room and they were partaking of an evening meal together. And these two excited disciples came in and and broke bread with them there in the meal. And as they were sharing the meal together, they were talking about what they had seen and heard. By this time, the risen Lord had appeared to Peter as well. And so Peter was chiming in with his testimony. And they're talking about this over the meal. While they were telling these things, it says, verse 36. But they were still in a state of dismay and confusion. They couldn't really get their minds around it. They couldn't really grapple with it. They They didn't think these two were liars, but they didn't really understand what it is that they were talking about. And that leads us to the second proof. The evidence of sight. He himself stood in their midst. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing spirit. He himself stood in their midst. The testimony of those that had seen the resurrected Christ was not enough. Now he appears among them. He stands among them and and he speaks to them. And they see him. They see him. Suddenly, he himself No one else but he stands there in their midst. Now, the skeptics have had a field day with this particular verse. They don't try to deny that it was Jesus standing there among them. What they try to to deal with is is the how did he get there. Because John's gospel is very clear. The doors are locked. The windows are closed tightly. They're afraid of the authorities. It's only been a couple of days since he was arrested and crucified, right? 
To affiliate with this man would be a dangerous thing to do. And so they are not publicly affiliating with him at this time. They are hidden. They are hiding away. They are cowering in fear. He himself stood in their midst. As I say, some of the skeptics over the years have postulated some interesting ways for Jesus to have appeared there. Some say that perhaps he climbed up a ladder the outside of the building and climbed in through the window. Others think that he descended perhaps from a stairway up on the roof. Or maybe he entered into the room before the doors were locked and he hid in the corner until the right time and then he jumped out. Some think he slipped in when the two disciples arrived and nobody saw it. Or perhaps a sympathetic doorkeeper opened the door and let him in. But, but look at the text again. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Let me just read to you John's account of the same event. Chapter 20, verse 19, John says, When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and were... Uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, that Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, Peace be with you. Beloved, he didn't climb in through a window. He didn't hide behind the curtain until the right moment to jump out. He wasn't sneaking in with the butler. Jesus Christ appeared in the middle of that room. Just like that. Just like that. What an incredible sight it must have been. I mean, the last time they had all collectively seen him was when he was hanging nailed to a cross, stripped and beaten, dying in agony. And now he stands here in the middle of, of the room, clothed. And he speaks to them, peace be with you. What a sight. What an amazing sight. Shouldn't be too hard to really imagine that he could appear there in the room. I mean, how would a door hold him? Or a wall or a rock tomb for that matter. Some think the stone was rolled away so Jesus could get out. Don't believe that. The stone was rolled away so that people could see in. He was no longer there. He was gone. And so he appears there in the middle of them. And notice their reaction here. When he appears and he speaks, it says they were startled and they were frightened and they thought they were seeing a spirit. They had been told by the witnesses that he was alive. Now he's standing there before them, but then instead of responding in any kind of worship or, or glory to God or anything like that, it says that they are frightened and they are startled. Mark adds in Mark 16, his rendition of this same account. Mark writes in Mark 16, verses 12 through 14. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. That's the two going down to Emmaus. And they went away and reported it to, to the others, but they did not believe them either. And afterward, he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them 
for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Mark says that Jesus is going to rebuke them or reproach them. We'll see it ourselves here in a moment. He is saying to them, you should believe. The witnesses have told you that it is true. You should believe. And yet, rather than believing, they are frightened. They are startled. By the way, this, as I say, falsifies the idea that among some that that the disciples were looking for a resurrection. And so when they didn't get it, they manufactured it in their minds. They were not looking for a resurrection. When the resurrected Lord stood before them, their response was one of fear, was one of being startled. It was one of unbelief. These were skeptics. And that leads us to our third proof, the evidence of hearing. They have the evidence of the testimony. They have the evidence of their own eyes in sight. Now, the evidence of hearing. Verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He rebukes them. He, he asks them a couple of questions to try to snap them back to reality. He's saying, what is it? Why are you so startled? Why are you so troubled? Why are there doubts arising in your heart? You should believe. You should expect this. This should not catch you by surprise like it has. He had promised them that he would rise again. Witnesses had told them that he had risen again. Yet they're not ready to believe it. As Jesus was approaching his crucifixion, for the six months prior to that, he would repeatedly tell his disciples when he was alone with them that he was going to die. He would tell them, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. And when we get there, I am going to be handed over to the authorities. And they are going to crucify me. But I will rise again on the third day. Yet they didn't believe. They didn't believe. They couldn't believe. They didn't want to believe. But they should have believed. And Jesus here rebukes them. Their slowness in accepting the reality of his resurrection. The fact that they do not expect it to happen is a source of rebuke for them. He's saying, listen, I've been telling you this now for months. And it has happened, and, and, the, and the testimony of the witnesses that it did happen has come to you, and you still refuse to believe. You have hard hearts. There is a hardness to your hearts. You must be persuaded. They're skeptics, just like the rest of humanity are skeptics. And so he brings them the fourth proof. He has given them the testimony of the witnesses. He has given them sight by, of himself standing in their midst. He has given them the evidence of hearing with their own ears. 
Now he will add the evidence of touch. He's going to allow all of their senses. In fact, I would say not just allow. He's going to command that all of their senses come to bear on this reality. So there is no doubt in their minds about what it is that has happened. So here in verses 39 and 40, he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. The Greek is very emphatic here. It is me. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They thought he was some sort of disembodied spirit, some kind of phantom, perhaps a ghost. They didn't didn't know. They were afraid. They see him. They hear him. Others have said they've seen him. They've heard him. He says, touch me now. By the way, this, the way this is constructed here in the Greek, it's not an option. It's not touch me if you want to. It is a command to come forth and touch me. See my hands. The word could be translated wrists. See them. There are holes in them. See my feet. <coughs> John adds his His addition to this same account, he says, Stick forth your hand into the hole of my side. Bring your senses to bear on this. Handle me. Touch me. Many years later, the Apostle John himself, in 1 John 1.1, when he is speaking about Christ, Reflecting back over the years, giving his testimony of what he has seen and handled, says just that. We have seen with our eyes, we have beheld, and our hands have handled. We literally touched him. This was no spirit. This was no phantom. This was no ghost. This was flesh and bones. See me, hear me, touch me, and be not unbelieving. But he won't leave them here with just four proofs. The task that he is going to give to them, the responsibility that lays before them is too large. He's not going to entrust it to just Four proofs. He's going to continue to pile them on so that there is absolutely no doubt in their minds of the reality of this event. So he's going to add the fifth proof of demonstration here in verses 41 through 43. And while they still could not believe it for joy, verse 41, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Isn't that interesting? Look again there at verse 41. They still could not believe it now for joy and were marveling. First they were overcome by fear and doubt. Now they've got a a measure of faith here, but it's still weak. But the, but the, the emotions of joy and amazement have flooded into them. Jesus is not going to leave them in that unstable state. 
He's going to drive it home until it is a deep and settled conviction of their hearts. And so he adds this fifth proof, this fifth evidence of demonstration. Have you anything here to eat, he says. What have they just been doing? They have been sharing a meal together. I don't know if there's a plate of fish there still on the table or, or what, but he says, do you have anything here to eat? And look at verse 42. Look what they give him. The most mundane of things. They just sort of reach down to the table and, and apparently pick up a piece of broiled fish and they hand it to him. What does he do with it? Verse 43, he took it and he ate it before them. Was it because he was hungry? It takes a lot of work to rise from the dead, right? And, you know, I'm famished. I need a good meal. What have you got to eat? No, that's silly. Why did he eat? He ate because hallucinations don't eat. He ate because dead people don't eat. He ate because the only people who eat are those who are what? Alive. Alive. It's an amazing proof. It is a convincing proof. He took a piece of fish right in front of their eyes. Just ate it down. Stated down. Now John tells us after eating the fish, he vanished. He didn't go back out through the window and down the ladder. He vanished. I mean, the doors are still locked. And if we were had time to go over to John's account and trace it through, the work had been done. They were now convinced. All but one of them, who wasn't there at that time. He missed out on it. That's right. His last name's Thomas, right? His first name is Doubting, right? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. He missed it, text tells us. But the rest of them hadn't missed it. And they say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord and he is alive. And of course, good old Thomas says, well, I'll believe it when I get to do what? Same thing as you did. I want to put my hands in the wounds. I want to handle them too. I want to see him. The evidence of your testimony is not enough. I want to touch him. The text tells us that that following Sunday evening when they were again together, right? That Jesus did what? Appeared in their midst. Thomas got his chance fell before him, said, my Lord and my God. By the end of that evening, beloved, the disciples were convinced. They were convinced. But there's a couple of more proofs that get added. A couple of more And they're really for our benefit. 
You see, because we can't reach forth our hand and do what? Touch him. We can't see him eat the fish. He's not going to suddenly appear in our midst this morning before us. We are totally and completely dependent upon the first line of evidence. Testimony. Eyewitness accounts. And that's what the New Testament is comprised of. These eyewitness accounts. For us, those who were there and became so thoroughly convinced have passed on that testimony to us. And we are fully and totally dependent upon that. That gives us our sixth proof this morning for us to look at. Which is in verses 44 through 47. And that is the evidence of Scripture. We were not there to touch him. We have the evidence of the written word. Now, there's a chronological break here in the text between verses 43 and 44. Up through 43 all occurs at one time that Sunday night. But there's a break. And what happens here from 44 through to 49 occurs over a period of 40 days. And we're not sure where it happens and when. There were a number of additional appearances that Christ made to his disciples over that period of 40 days. And sometime during that time, the events of 44 and following occur. The evidence of Scripture, verse 44, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The evidence from the scriptures. He takes them back to the word of God, back into the Old Testament, and he says, all that was written there of me must be fulfilled. Go back and reread your Old Testament. Go back and reexamine what was written there because it is written of me. It points to me. He says, that which is in the law of Moses, like the Passover lamb, Israel, that's me. I am your Passover lamb. Like the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 that carried your sins figuratively away into the wilderness, that's me. Like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 recorded there in that great prophet, That suffering servant is me. Like the crucifixion psalm that David penned, Psalm 22, where he writes in in intimate detail about the agony of crucifixion, having never been crucified himself. That's written of me. Or the resurrection psalm in Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. That's written of me. Or the enthronement psalm, Psalm 110, that's written of me. All that is written here in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you see it? He said, go back to your Old Testament, reread it again. And then he he enabled them to understand what was written there. 
And that is what informed their preaching. That is what became the heart of their message. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He gave them the spiritual capacity to know the true intent of their Jewish Old Testament. That it pointed forward to him. That it said the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise again on the third day. That the purpose of his coming was to reconcile fallen humanity back to their creator. That the means of that reconciliation was repentance, a turning from their sin and an embracing the truth of Christ. Look here in verse 47. 46 and 47, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He said, it's all there for you. It's written there for you. Now just take it and spread it. Everyone can't have the experience that you had, disciples. They, for all time, henceforth, are going to be dependent upon your testimony. So take it out to them. And show them. How I am the fulfillment of all that was written. Mankind's problems find their resolution in Christ. He is the one who can bring life from death. He is the one who is suited to be our substitute. He is the one who carries away our sin. And that life-changing news is not just for a small group of people tucked away in a back corner of the Middle East, but it is for all mankind. And that leads us to our seventh Proof this morning. The evidence of conversion. Verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things, he says. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You are my witnesses. You are my spokesmen. I have given you ironclad proof. You are now to go out and to, to, to extend that proof through your preaching to all of mankind. You will not live long enough to tell everyone mouth to ear, and so you will reduce it to writing. And in written form, that testimony will be available to all generations. Beloved, I call this the evidence of conversion because just think with me. Just a few weeks before, these people were huddled where? 
in an upper room, right? With locked doors for fear of the authorities. When the resurrected Christ first appeared in their midst, or they first had testimony of it, of the reality of it, they didn't believe it, they were afraid. They were anything but bold people. But after the sending forth of the promise of my Father upon you, there, verse 49, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God who came at Pentecost, they became bold gospel preachers. It is the evidence of a converted life. They all died violently. They all suffered tremendously. They all preached boldly. People don't die for hallucinations. People don't die for made-up stories. People don't give their lives to that kind of a fable. They were convinced of the reality of it all. And they gave themselves to the worldwide proclamation of that truth. It's an amazing change. A small, frightened band to a group of men and women who turned the world upside down. Do you know there are more of us here in this room right now than there were of them. Can you imagine us turning the world upside down? There are seven convincing proofs right here in this text. Now, God doesn't give us these proofs so that we might idly speculate upon them. So that we might consider them at our leisure and decide whether they measure up to our standard of evidence or not. Do you know that the doctrine of the resurrection became so intertwined in the apostolic preaching, it's mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. The resurrection becomes the very cornerstone of what it means to believe. And when they preached the doctrine of the resurrection, with it they preached repentance from sin and faith in Christ. I've shown you these seven proofs this morning. What will you do with them? Will you merely discard them? Well, you say, that's interesting. What else do you have? How about an eighth? Give me a ninth. Well, beloved, in times past, God has overlooked your ignorance. But he is now declaring to you that you must repent. You must turn from your sin. And you must embrace the living Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternal life. Nobody can predict their death. 
Back over the Christmas time, there were groups of vacationers in a faraway, exotic place. They woke up to a bright, sunshiny morning. They were strolling the beaches. Some were surfing, playing in the sand. Unbeknownst to them, a wave of incredible power was speeding towards them. Faster than a locomotive. It rolled across those beaches and it swept out to sea. Thousands of tourists. They woke up that morning thinking they were going to have a fun day at the beach. Before lunch, they stood in the presence of their Creator. Others go out in the morning, get in their car, they start it, they head out onto the freeway, they don't come home at night. Beloved, we don't know what the future holds. We have no promise of long lives. There's no promise implicit in this gospel that you have time to even come back to this at a later point. To say, well, yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to talk about it some other time. But I'm kind of busy now. God doesn't give that kind of leisure. When you come in contact with the truth... You have two options. You embrace it by faith or you turn away from it. There is no neutral ground. Let me ask you a question. If you were to die today, and you were to stand before your Creator, and He were to ask you, why should I allow you into heaven? What would be your answer? How would you respond to him? If you are the least bit unsure, if you can't figure out how the resurrection of Christ fits into that answer, and after the service this morning, we'll have some Counselors over here by this cross. They would love to talk with you further on these things. If I die, will I live again? What say ye? Let's pray.